It feels pretty good to be on the right side of inclusion, doesn't it? Whether it's race or gender or sexuality or education level or immigration status or wealth, when you find yourself on the side of the debate that thinks that everyone belongs, that everyone should have access, that everyone is equal, it's easy to understand that you must be on the right side of history. But you know how you can tell if your concept of inclusion is misplaced? If it excludes someone. For months now, we've been making our way through Paul's letter to the Romans. It's his treatise on the gospel, his systematic exploration of the Christian faith. It's his masterpiece, his magnum opus. In this letter, he has explained how the good news of Jesus Christ is the means by which God is bringing the fullness of God's reign to the earth. And if you've read the first eight chapters, you've got a pretty good understanding of how it all hangs together. But when we get to chapter 9, we hit a wall of sorts. And that wall is Israel. Israel is God's beloved child, God's first love. And just as the prophet Isaiah had foretold, God was using Israel to reveal God's salvation to the ends of the earth. That's one of the reasons Paul knew that Jesus was more than a prophet, because through him all nations, even the Gentiles, were finding their way into relationship with God. As God's great work of salvation was nearing its completion, the same God who time and again had gathered the lost outcasts of Israel had now begun to gather the other peoples of the earth to God's self. Isaiah's prophecy that we heard today that God's house would become a house of prayer for all nations, that prophecy was being fulfilled the Apostle Paul and the Christians in Rome to whom he wrote, they had witnessed how God had used Jesus Christ to accomplish that great work and bring those Gentiles into covenant relationship with God. There was just one lingering problem. Israel. Even by the time Paul was writing to the church in Rome, the way of Jesus had become a mostly Gentile religion. What had begun as a branch of Judaism dedicated to spiritual renewal had become a faith in which non-Jews had begun to call themselves the spiritual descendants of Abraham. And all the while, Abraham's biological descendants, well, they'd been quite happy to keep to themselves. Thank you very much. But if Jesus Christ really were the means by which God had once and for all brought all nations to God's self, why weren't the children of Abraham getting on board? If Jesus really was who he said he was and who Paul said he was, how then would Paul explain the near universal refusal of his fellow Israelites to adopt the faith of God's Messiah? For the most part, Paul didn't try. 
And more important than that, Paul seems to have been critical of those who would try to explain how it works. At the beginning of today's lesson, Paul wrote, I ask then, has God rejected God's people? By no means. But in the part of chapter 11 that our lectionary skips over, Paul turns his focus not to the children of Abraham, but to those who would presume to take Israel's place at the table. If some of the branches were broken off, he wrote, and you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in their place to share the rich root of the olive tree, do not boast over the branches. If you do boast, remember that it is not you who support the root, but the root who supports you. It seems that some of the Gentile Christians had interpreted Israel's rejection of Christianity as a sign that God had moved on, that God had withdrawn God's love for God's people and transferred it to the new Israel. But Paul wouldn't have it. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable, he wrote. There must be another way. There is a danger. I think, that in a similar way, we would inadvertently restrict God's mercies by casting God's great work of salvation in the image of our own inclusion. And I think that the story of Jesus and the Canaanite woman exposes some of those tendencies. How do we hear this shocking story? How do we make sense of Jesus' words and the woman's persistence? Whose limited understanding of salvation is being challenged here? Is it Jesus who is being taught a lesson, or are we the ones with something to learn? That Matthew would identify this woman anachronistically as a Canaanite and not, as Mark did when he told the same story, with the more specific ethnic term of Syrophoenician, that's not an accident. Matthew sets the stage for us, begging us to imagine this encounter as if it were a direct manifestation of the historic conflict between the ancient Israelites who had taken possession of the land that God had promised to Abraham and the Canaanite residents who stood in their way. In other words, in Matthew's version of the story, the woman isn't merely a Gentile, she's a Canaanite, which means to the faithful Israelite reader, she is not only a Gentile, but a very obstacle to the fulfillment of God's promises. But instead of finishing the story the way we might expect it to end, instead of telling it as a story of God's triumph over God's enemies, Matthew shows us that even those who represent an impediment to God's salvation can become the very means by which that salvation is accomplished. Kneeling at Jesus' feet, the woman says to him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Her faithfulness is not a rejection of the harsh-sounding words 
that Jesus had said to her, but an expansion of them, a twisting of them to make clear an even fuller reality. Jesus had rightly come to rescue the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's the way God's salvation must work. It has to start with God's chosen people. That's what they were chosen for. It wouldn't be right to reject God's love for God's covenant people, to take the food away from the children in order to give it to those who would come after them. But because God's reign was coming to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, it had become possible to see God's covenant love expanding to include even those who for centuries had stood in the way of God's salvation. I wonder. I wonder whether we've become so accustomed to being recipients of that salvation that we've forgotten whose mercies really determine how that salvation works. I think we have a tendency to say to God, you know, God, we are the enlightened ones, we're the inclusive ones, we'll tell you who belongs in your kingdom. But what it's so easy to forget is that even our best efforts at being inclusive will always fall short of God's great mercies. No matter how wide open our welcome may be, we will inevitably reject some whom God would embrace. You don't think so? I wonder what political or religious group has members that you find the hardest to love. I wonder whose ideology or platform has convinced you that they are nothing more than an obstacle to God's reign here on the earth. In the end, who do you think gets to decide whom God will love? Like the Pharisees, we have a habit of substituting our own version of holiness, which we naturally assume to be the fullest possible expression of God's love. We substitute our version for the real thing. But Jesus shows us that God's love is always bigger than we think it is. Even if it works on us in reverse, the encounter with a Canaanite mother proves that. Do we really think that Jesus is the one whose vision of God's kingdom is too small? Do we really believe that we are the enlightened ones who have it all figured out? The good news of Jesus Christ is that God loves everyone, even those whom we could never imagine that God could love. And if that truth doesn't still shock us, then we have underestimated not only God's love for others, but God's love for us as well. As people of faith, as followers of Jesus, we are called to believe that God's mercies are always bigger than we expect them to be. Otherwise, we can't know what it means to belong to the one who loves us just like that.